Okay, why don't we go to God in prayer now as we prepare our hearts to listen from His Word. Dear Father, we pray that as we listen to your Word today from 1 Samuel chapter 28, that we may really get to the heart of what it's saying to us and to take it seriously and to take it to our lives so that we do not make the same mistake as Saul. Well. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I want to ask you a question. What is the worst thing that could happen to you? I think, think about that for a moment. Just think about that question seriously. What is the worst thing that could happen to you? Now, for some of us, it could be losing a loved one, a family member, father, mother, husband, wife, a child, or maybe losing your health, getting some life-threatening disease, cancer, having a stroke, or maybe losing your possessions, uh, your house, your savings, your retirement plan. Now, what is the worst thing that could happen to you? Now, it's a very serious issue, and it's a very serious matter. It's not a laughing matter. And we take it very seriously, and I think that that's the same attitude that we should bring as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 28. Because it is a very serious issue and it deals with that very same topic of what is the worst thing that can ever happen to someone. Now as we come to the closing stretch, and well done to all of us, okay, we can give ourselves a pat on the back, we only have three chapters left, or three, three out. About three chapters, four chapters left before we come to the end of one Samuel. And uh, as we come to chapter 28 onwards, we come to the great war, right? uh, the mother of all wars in their eyes, I suppose. A war between the Philistines and God's people. And this is a war which is really for all the marbles. So if you look up here on the map, uh, basically, uh, okay, this is Israel, and uh, the Philistines who control this territory were bringing all their forces to bear in central Israel, around the area of Jezreel, the area of Bethshan. And if they win this battle, you can see that they control the, 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 the whole of the middle of God's promised land. And they will split Israel in two with the northern tribes up here to the north and Judah, Simeon and Benjamin, Ephraim down to the south. So this is a very, very major battle and uh, it's what chapter 28 to 31 concern us with. Now, as we begin the story about this great battle, uh, we read from verse 3 and uh, Samuel records for us, or I guess uh, the school of Samuel records for us what happened to Samuel at this time. It says in verse 3, Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. Now, if we've been following the book of 1 Samuel, immediately, this seems really strange, doesn't it? Because we had already heard previously that Samuel had died. So remember back in chapter 25, okay, which is three long chapters ago, we heard the same thing. Now Samuel had died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. And this was during the incident of David and Abigail and Nabal. So some period of time had passed since the death of Samuel to the beginning of the war. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is it now, that again, repeated that Samuel had died when he had died so long ago? Well, is it because the writers we having a bad day in the office. They forgot that they already told us in chapter 25, so they put it in again in chapter 28. No, I don't think so. I think what's happening is that the telling of the death of Samuel is to point us, I guess, to a sense of foreboding and uh, negativity and, uh, and, and present an ominous note that this battle will not go well for Israel and God's people. Because Samuel had been a giant among his people. 
uh, not a giant as in a big man, but he had been a giant in terms of his influence on God's people. If you read 1 Samuel, he'd been there right from the very beginning and he would always had a positive influence on Israel. He was a prophet, he was a judge, he was a priest. He acted as a very positive influence on the people of God. Uh, he was surrounded by incompetent, evil and sinful people, but still, he did what God wanted him to do. And his positive influence extended even to Saul. Because in the second half of three, verse 3, it says that Saul, most probably through Samuel, and his influence expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. Now we know that Saul and his rule had done many bad things. But here was one of the few positive things that he'd done. He'd obeyed God. And God had said very clearly that when they went to the promised land, they were to listen to only God himself and no one else. No magic, no dead spirits, nobody else, nothing else but God alone. And in the law, if you look up here, we won't spend a lot of time on it. You would have done it in your Bible studies. God was so serious about this, this uh, prohibition against consulting mediums and spirits and dead uh, things that four times in the law it says that you are not to turn to mediums or seek out spiritists for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. In Leviticus 20, I will set my face against the person who turns to mediums or spiritists to prostitute themselves, himself by following them and I will cut him off from his people. Okay, next slide. Again, in uh, 27 of Leviticus. No, oh, is it there? Yeah, 27 of Leviticus. Verse 27 of chapter 20. A man or woman who is a medium or spiritist among you must be put to death. You are to stone them and their blood will be on their own heads. And again in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Same thing. You're only to listen to God. You're not to practice divination or sorcery, interpret omens, engage in witchcraft or cast spells or see someone who's a medium or consult the dead. So here we see that Saul did a good thing. He did a good thing under the influence of Samuel. Samuel's positive influence. But now we read that Samuel was dead. He was gone. So it's a very negative tone to the beginning of this great battle. Verse 4. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem. While Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa, when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or urim or prophets. Now Saul looked up. He saw the army. Uh, it's probably looking forward to the future. Okay, next slide. Because the story is a bit fluid, right? But what happened was, uh, the Philistines, they moved up from the Philistine uh, cities, Gaza, Eshkelon, Ashdod, Gaz, Ekron, those are the five major Philistine cities. They gathered Ephek. Okay, remember we sort of saw that last week and we'll continue to see that in the weeks to come. This is the major military staging area and David, with his band of 600 men, also gathered there, but that's another story for another time. The army, the Philistine army then engaged Israel at Jezreel, while King Saul and his soldiers moved from the capital, Gabeah, and went to Gilboa. So the Philistines were in Jezreel on the north, and David, oh, sorry, not David, Saul and his army were in Gilboa, across, looking at each other. And what did King Saul see when he looked across 
and saw the Philistine army. He saw a huge army. Because next week we will see that not only were the Philistines marching out in their divisions of hundreds, but they were marching out in their divisions of thousands. So if you have divisions of thousands, you imagine how big the Philistine army would have been. So when Saul saw this army, he was afraid. His heart, it says, was filled with terror. Now, as we look at the history of uh, King Saul and his reign on Israel, we see that there were two other occasions where King Saul was really faced with this terrifying sight, uh, filled with fear and terror. The first time was when he first became king. And you remember that at that time, the Philistines had actually controlled uh, vast tracts of God's land in Judah. Uh, he, the Philistines had so much control that the, the Israelites couldn't even make their own swords and their spears. Remember, they had to fight with their plowshares and their whatever else. But God had helped Saul during that time. How did he help Saul? He sent him the prophet Samuel. Right, so 1 Samuel chapter 10. Remember, this is what Samuel told, the prophet Samuel told Saul. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what to do. So at that point in time, in Samuel chapter 10, remember, it was Samuel, God working through Samuel to give promises to King Saul, which led Saul to victory. The second time, the King Saul felt terror in his heart at seeing this great mass of Philistine army was when David came, when God sent David to help Saul. So in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, again, remember, they were fighting and they saw across each other and a great warrior, Goliath, came out. And remember how Saul and the Israelites reacted to, to Goliath and the great army? It said that they were dismayed and they were terrified. And again, God sent someone to help Saul during this time. And that was David. Now, on this day, chapter 28, there was no more Samuel. Because we just read, Samuel was dead. But there was no more David as well. Because David was now on the other side. Because Saul had chased him with his hatred and jealousy and anger. And now there was no David to help. And Samuel was dead. So what does Saul do? Well, in verse 6, he inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or urim or prophets. What Saul did was the right thing to do. He called on God, he prayed to God for advice. He inquired of the Lord. But God was silent. And God was silent not because he was making Saul wait, not because... God wanted Saul to trust in him. But we know that right from chapter 15 onwards, it was because God was angry with Saul. God was very, very, very angry with Saul because Saul had not obeyed him and had not listened to him. So 1 Samuel 15, right, uh, okay, the reason why we keep going back and forth is because basically the last few chapters of Samuel bring together everything that's been happening in the past. Remember, God had said, through Samuel, that because Saul had failed to obey him, had failed to obey God, God would, would reject him as king and would not 
be on his side anymore. Samuel has said, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. And this is important, okay, I mean, I won't bring it up in the sermon, but, but he's saying rebellion is like divination, is like looking at spirits and mediums, right, doing your own thing, which again is what Saul is going to do. And arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now, from 1 Samuel chapter 15 all the way to chapter 28, we never see Saul actually inquiring of God again. You notice that? If you go all the way back to 15, what does is, what is Saul spend his time doing? We don't see him praying. We don't see him repenting. We don't see him asking God for forgiveness. He doesn't inquire of God of his will. He spends all his time trying to kill David. In fact, his relationship from God with God goes from bad to worse. His attitude becomes more and more rebellious. Because in 1 Samuel 22, if it's not enough that he didn't obey God or listen to God, he kills God's priest. So remember in Samuel 22, he killed 85 of the priests. No wonder God didn't speak to him. And no wonder, if you look there, in verse 6, he couldn't God couldn't speak to him through the use of the, the Urim. Because the Urim is what the priest wore, and there were no more priests. Now finally, Saul is in a tight spot. He's facing his greatest crisis ever. Now is the time he really needs God, and now he turns to God. But there is only deafening silence. He prays to God, and what does he hear? That sound. Nothing. So what does Saul do? In verse 7 to 8, Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes. And at night he and two men went to the women. Consult the spirit for me, he said, and bring up, the one, bring up for me the one I name. Now here, what Saul does is totally unbelievable. Uh, but yeah, in a way, it's really consistent with what we know of Saul, isn't it? He makes really dumb, stupid decisions. If God doesn't speak to you, what should you be doing? If God is silent with you because He is angry with you, what should you be doing? Well, He should be doing like so many people we've been reading in the Old Testament where He should be tearing off His clothes with anguish, putting ashes on his head and repenting his sackcloth, fasting and praying. That's what he should be doing. He should be trying to get right with God. But who does he call instead? Not the Ghostbusters, right? But he calls on a witch or a spiritist or a medium in Endor. Right? The psalmist in Psalm 6 says, God is a merciful God. If Saul only would go back in the, I don't know how many years from chapter 15 to here, if only God, if he'd only took taken God seriously and he had gone back to God and cried out for mercy and wept, God would have listened to him. Psalm 6 says, Away from me all who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and dismayed. They will turn back in sudden disgrace. That's what Saul should have been doing. 
But he didn't do it since chapter 15 and he doesn't do it now. Instead, what does he do? He piles on one more sin on top of all the other sins that he's been doing. The sin of divination, spiritists, mediums, consulting the dead. We began by saying that in the good old days, Saul listened to Samuel and what was the one good thing that he did? He banned all the mediums and spiritists. But now, he goes back to doing the bad thing. And it's a story of sneakiness and desperation, isn't it? Because it says that he disguised himself. He put in his sunglasses and his fake moustache. Alright, now why did he do this? Well, if you look up here on this map, uh, okay, again. Yep. You see that um, Endor is up in the north here. Oh, wait, no. The map, the map, the map. Yeah. So they can't remember the map. Okay. So you see that Endor is up here. Okay. And uh, this is where the army of Israel is. This is where the armies of the Philistines are. So in order to get to the witch, okay, I shouldn't keep calling her witch, but I mean the spiritist or the medium, right? Okay. He has to go across enemy territory. So that's why he puts on this disguise because he doesn't want to be captured and tortured or whatever. But what a desperate man he must be. That in order to find the answer, he would, he would put on this disguise and go across to consult this medium. Now we don't know exactly why he's going to speak to the medium and that's where the story becomes interesting. In verse 9, he meets the woman and the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for me to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord. As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, Whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel. What a sad, pathetic, stupid thing to do. Now we have come to expect this from Saul. As we've seen over the lifetime of Saul, there are a few things he likes to do, apart from carrying his spear. One is, he likes to make oaths that he doesn't keep. And the second thing is, he likes to use God's name in vain. To use God's name to make these oaths that he never intends or never keeps. So you remember up here on the slide, uh, next one, the 1 Samuel one, uh, backwards. Uh, I know I'm confusing you, sorry. Oh, okay, it's not here, don't worry. Is it 1 Samuel 14? 1 Samuel 14, verse 39, Saul says, As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if it lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. Okay, remember chapter 14 was when he, he made this oath that Jonathan, whoever ate the, when he made the, uh, the oath not that no one will eat, must die, even if it's Jonathan, and, but Jonathan ate. In chapter 19, Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath, said, As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. 1 Samuel chapter 24, he spoke to David, Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Now if you listen to these three oaths as we've gone through the book of Samuel, Saul never kept any one of these oaths. And every time, he uses God's name. Now here, we see that this is the worst oath of all because he uses God's name in order to achieve something which God doesn't want him to do. How stupid is that? He reminds me of uh, this guy that I used to know at work. 
who used to speak very Christian language, you know, praise God, Jesus. But he was not a Christian in my mind. He spoke very Christianized language, very church language. But I don't think he had a deep relationship with God. It's just that I remember a pastor once warned, just because a preacher uses the word Jesus or says Amen or Hallelujah or praise God in the sermon, doesn't mean that it's a Christian sermon. And I think in Saul's case, it's the same thing. He uses the word the Lord or Yahweh very freely, but he has no relationship with Yahweh, no real fellowship with God. And it's so ironic, isn't it? Because he swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. But it's a promise that he cannot keep. He may not punish her for what he did, but God will surely punish her for what he did. And he's making a promise by God for something that he knows, or maybe he doesn't know, for something that we know God doesn't want her to do. Well, the irony is, who does he call up? He calls up Samuel. Verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Now, if you look in the whole of the Old Testament, people coming up from the dead is extremely rare. Very, very rare. In fact, there are three other occasions in which someone is raised from the dead. In 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah raised the widow's son. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha raised the son of the Shunammite woman. 2 Kings chapter 13, Elisha raised the dead man. And in every one of these times, it is a positive thing. It's a good thing. It is a sign of God's power and points forward to the final resurrection. But here, we have the negative recording of someone being raised from the dead. But it is not a manifestation of God's power. It is a manifestation of magic and evil and spiritism. And in the sense, Samuel doesn't really raise up from the dead. He merely speaks from the dead as a spirit. So this is not a positive incident, it is a very negative incident. And we see why Saul took all the trouble of putting on his makeup, all the trouble of seeing the spiritists. Why? Because he wants an answer for the coming battle. That's all he's really, really interested in. He needs a medium and he needs Samuel to find out how to defeat the Philistines. Now, in a sense, this is a really sad picture. If, you, if you've been reading through the whole book of Samuel, chapter 28 is a very sad passage because it shows you how fast Saul has fallen. When Saul was alive, sorry, when Samuel was alive, Saul never listened to him after chapter 15. He never listened to Samuel. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 15, Saul never met Samuel again after that. When he was alive, Saul didn't listen to him, didn't look for him. But now Saul, Samuel is dead. And Saul takes all this trouble to look for him, to listen to him. And it's also sad because in the rare time that King Saul had actually listened to Samuel, he had done the right thing, 
But now in looking for him, he's actually doing the wrong thing. Hello? Didn't Saul hear Samuel the first time when Samuel said that you must not have any spiritists or mediums in the land, that you should not consult them? I don't know what Saul was expecting. Whether he expected Samuel to say, oh, hi, you know, thanks for rising me from the dead, right? Uh, you know, didn't you see the sign on the tombstone saying rest in peace or whatever? Okay? But surely he must have realized that Samuel would have disapproved of what he was doing. And surely it would not be a good, positive thing that happened in the end. And that's what we see in verse 15. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me and the God has departed from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams, so I have called on you to tell me what to do. Verse 16. Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? All he really wanted to do was have advice as to how to beat the Philistines. But he was so desperate that he forgot that everything comes from God. Or maybe in a sense he didn't forget. He just never really knew God. You see, if you read this, it's so frustrating because surely if God is not speaking to you, then God's prophet cannot speak to you. See, God can't uh, work just by his prophet alone. He, He works through his prophet. The prophet himself has no power. God is the one who holds the power. God is the one who has the wisdom. God has the foresight. The prophet is just the means by which God speaks. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, obviously um, Saul didn't have the benefit of 2 Peter, but it says what he should have known. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, verse 16 shows the fundamental problem of Saul. He does not understand that he has a broken relationship with God. That the Lord has turned away from him and become his enemy. And that without God, the prophet is useless. See, what Saul should have been doing all this time from chapter 15 to chapter 28 was getting God back on his side. Winning God back over crying to God for forgiveness, repenting, crying out to Him, weeping. But He never does this. In chapter 15 to chapter 28, all His energy is spent trying to kill David. Because Saul was only really worried about one thing, the kingdom and his kingship. He was never worried about his relationship with God. And now when he finally needs God, God is not there. In verse 17 to 19, Samuel only has this bit of prophecy for him. And what a terrible prophecy it is. The Lord has done what he predicted through me, as we've already seen in chapter 15, right? The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me dead. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Now, there is nothing 
that Saul can do. Why? Not because the Philistines are so powerful. Because it says there, the Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. There is nothing that Saul could do because God is against him. Uh, He could have nuclear weapons for all he cared. But because God was against him, he would not win. So surely Saul here is not just a man without God, but he's a man without hope. He's a man without hope of ever being right again with God. It is too late for him to be right with God because his fate is sealed. God has turned his face against him. He is set as his enemy. Between that night and the next day, there is nothing he can do to prevent the wrath of God being poured out against him. It's a portrait of a sad, sad man. A man without God and a man without hope of ever having God. Now, as we come to the end of this passage, I think that this passage is a great warning to us. It's a great warning to us because I think that as we look at the picture of Saul, and we've seen Saul for a very long time, haven't we? We see a portrait of a man with a tragic end. Because he began so well, but he ended so badly. And I think that this is the worst thing that could have happened to anybody. That probably that you would not hope on your worst enemy. Here's a man without God and without hope of ever having God and without hope of ever avoiding his wrath. Now imagine how Saul felt that day when he heard the crushing word from Samuel. Well, we don't have to imagine very much because in verse 20 he says, he fell full length on the ground, right? It's like he's lying on the ground face down, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. He knew then what his fate was. He knew there was no turning back. I think that's the worst thing that can happen to someone. Not losing your family, not getting sick, having a life-threatening disease, not losing your possessions. It is to be without God and without hope of ever being right with God. If you look at um, the New Testament, Uh, Who is the person that speaks the most about hell and judgment? It's actually Jesus. And Jesus often uses the imagery of being too late. Too late. To be without God and without hope. See, when Jesus speaks in uh, these passages, and there are many more of them, okay, there are counted one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight passages, and they all say the same thing. These are the weeping and gnashing of teeth passages, right? You just have, for those of you who are using your iPad or phone or whatever, you can do a search for weeping and gnashing of teeth and they all come up here, all eight of them. And it all says the same thing. For many people, one day when they are thrown outside into the darkness or into hell, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, in verse 42 of Matthew chapter 13, when they are the fairy furnace, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, when the angels come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fairy furnace, they will be weeping and gnashing their teeth. Matthew chapter 22. When the king told his descendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness, they will be weeping and gnashing their teeth. You see, the descriptions of Jesus, of people who have left it too late, is the same as the reaction of Saul, who left it too late. 
fear, despair, weeping, gnashing of teeth. You see, these are the descriptions of people who know that it is too late and it is, they will never ever have a chance again to be right with God. They are people without hope, without God. I know that when you read the newspaper, when you watch television, uh, probably the people right now who are suffering the most, if you can think of it that way, are probably the people in the Philippines. The people who have been victims of that typhoon. You know, they've lost all. They've lost their family members, they've lost their homes, they've lost their livelihood. But I think without being flippant about it, when we look at God's Word, there are worse things than being a victim of a typhoon. It is to actually be without God and to be without hope of ever being right with God. I remember in my life there would be many people who I tried to share the gospel with and uh, for whatever reason they rejected it. And in the end, they passed on and they were never saved. I remember one of my dad's very good friends and I spoke to him three days before he died. And uh, he didn't want to become a Christian and now it is too late. And if we believe what the Bible is saying, there will be great fear and despair when he realizes what his eternal future is. I have a, a, a quote here from this book I was reading about the great Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a very great preacher and a pastor. And he tells of a man who on his deathbed sent for him. In his lifetime, the, the man had jeered at Spurgeon, had often denounced him as a hypocrite, and now in desperation and death he called for him. And of this instance, and of this man, Spurgeon wrote, He had, when in health, wickedly refused Christ, yet in his death agony, he had superstitiously, superstitiously sent for me. Too late he sighed for the ministry of reconciliation and sought to enter in at the closed door, but he was not able. There was no space left for him then for repentance, for he had wasted the opportunities which God had long granted to him. See, I think that's a, a sad situation that Saul faced. He had all that time from chapter 15 to chapter 28, but he never took the trouble to get back to God. And his greatest need, he found himself wanting. So are you God's enemy? Are you like Saul? Or will you heed the warning of Saul? Will you seek to be God's enemy because of your rebellion? Or will you seek to be his friend or as part of his family? I think the second application is related to the first. And I think it was to do with what Saul so desperately wanted all his life. See, what did Saul really want in the end? So desperately. He wanted his kingship. He wanted his kingdom. And to solve his problem, he was willing to, 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 to put on a disguise, to go into enemy territory, to break the law, to find a spiritist and a medium to raise Samuel from the dead. But in the end, what should he be, have been so desperately trying to solve instead? What was the bigger problem of Saul's life? Well, the bigger problem was his lack of relationship with God. He always thought that his big problem was the kingship, to be king, to fight the Philistines. But the bigger problem was his relationship with God. And until the very end, until the very end when Samuel spoke to him, I guess he never really realized that that was what he should have been doing, isn't it? 
Look at what Samuel says. Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? That is what was the real problem. The real problem we saw. I know I've shared with you about my uncle in Switzerland and how a few years ago he had terminal throat cancer and I asked you all to pray for him. And he recovered. And even the doctors in Switzerland said it was a miracle. Uh, Last year, my uncle was in Singapore and I was talking to him. And after talking to him many conversations, I tried to keep encouraging him to come to Christ because I said, look, God has given you a second chance. God has saved you. But all my uncle was interested in was to ask me to pray for his health. Now, the thing is, we could all pray for his health every day for the next 365 days, but he will die one day. And when he dies, it will not be a happy story then, isn't it? Because he will be weeping his He'll be gnashing his teeth. He'll be filled with despair because he missed out on the more important thing, which was a relationship with God. See, my uncle desperately wants good health, but really what he desperately needs is a relationship with God. And I wonder whether for ourselves we can be desperately wanting the wrong things, just like Saul. Maybe we desperately want that job or we desperately want to solve some problem in our life. We desperately want to pass the exam. But what we really should be desperate about is to always make sure that we are right with God. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, as we come near to the very end of Saul's life, and as we've travelled and seen his life right from the very beginning till now, we are truly saddened, dear Father, by how once this man who was empowered by your Holy Spirit, who seemed to have so much potential, has failed in such a desperate way that he fell and fell and fell and fell. That instead of obeying you, he was content to rebel against you, to seek to kill your anointed, he killed your priest, listened to himself, never sought your forgiveness, never repented, never cried out in prayer towards you. And in his darkest hour, realized his great folly. Dear Father, we may, may all of us learn from the life of Saul and the mistakes that he made. And see that the most important thing is not the things of this world, but rather our relationship with you. Help us to not be like Saul who ended up without you and without hope of ever having you. But to teach us strongly and powerfully that in everything we do, in every priority of our life, that we must seek always to be part of your family, to be forgiven in Jesus Christ, to be right in relationship with you. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.